honor him, Father, is worthy of all honor, praise, and blessing, glory. Though men dressed him up and mocked him with a crown of thorns and a reed in his hand and a purple cloak on, that we honor him as the true king over all. And though men despise and rejected him and the nations continue to rage against you, Father, we just say that you are good and your judgments are true and just and we want to be those who honor you with our lives and, and are faithful in our testimony concerning you, God, that we represent you in word and deed well, Father. We just ask you, Holy Spirit, that you come this morning, you'd be honored in the word and what is spoken, Father, that you would draw us near to yourself and we just say we want to know you, God. We don't want to be those who stand before you and are declared to not know you. We want to be those who stay close to the truth and do not wander from it and uh, stand before you with us, Father, blame. And so we offer ourselves this morning. I just ask you to come, Holy Spirit, that you wash us anew in the Word of God. In Jesus' name. So everybody has notes. And we'll just do, kind of like we did yesterday, we'll, we'll do kind of a more formal time of teaching this morning. And... and uh, We'll just for lunch we'll walk we'll work through uh, you know just some main scriptures and and then after lunch we can uh, do more like we did yesterday informal just kind of question and answer working through different scriptures so uh, so yesterday we we really focused on kind of Jewish expectations the kingdom of God and uh, uh, you know, work through that kind of diagram down at the bottom there with uh, just kind of the Jerusalem-centered, Israel-centered structure of, of the age to come and, and how things will be ordered uh, in the age to come, primarily along uh, ethnic lines and that uh, ethnicity will be the, the uh, you know, uh, the boundary markers for how socially, politically, you know, everything will be administrated in the glory of God and the resurrection and eternal life. And first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, like Paul says in Romans 2. And, and uh, so you get kind of a, a uh, rather than the just kind of abstract, even if it's on a new earth, you know, the resurrection can seem fairly abstract and not ethereal, but uh, you don't have uh, clear ideas about uh, how it will play out. And, and if if your you know discipleship is it always is according to destiny, you know you're even in the world you're always discipled according to your destiny. Whether you want to become a doctor, you're discipled for eight. 10 years in school, you know, according to what you're going to become or business world or, you know, princes are discipled according to taking over, you know, the kingdoms of their fathers or whoever. It's just whatever you're heading towards, that's what you're discipling towards. And so, um, so, you know, you, you get a, if it's a heavenly destiny, it's an eternal sing-along, then suited for heaven, you're being discipled, and, and uh, you end up, like they say, 
so heavenly minded, no earthly good, because all of this is without value, since it'll all be burned up anyway, right? So, um, and then the kingdom now is, you know, very, you know, disciple to take over the world kind of bit. And so we want to be, you know, uh, very next stage minded and, and uh, like Paul says in First Corinthians 7, those who are married, you know, because the appointed time is short, those who are married ought to act as though they were not, those who are engaged in business as though they weren't, those who handle the world's wealth. And not that those things are unimportant, but that everything we do in life, we set our heart on our destiny, and it informs everything we do. And this is how we live as in the daytime. And because we know the daytime will be a home of righteousness, the age to come will be a home of righteousness, then we put on Christ Jesus and we live in righteousness now and, and we walk according to truth and not according to darkness and lies. And we, we deal with one another not according to the flesh, but according to being created in the image of God, which will be you know renewed at, in the age to come and these kinds of things. And so... When we get a when we get a framework for the age to come, then we can know kind of discipleship and how to steward our lives, you know, and and then and then uh, we kind of work through a theology of stewardship and especially how that relates between Jew and Gentile and a lot of the issues in the New Testament between Jew and Gentile. A lot of that's just stewardship, discipleship according to destiny, and because the Jews will administrate the inheritance, you know, as firstborn uh, in the age to come, then they have responsibilities of stewardship according to that destiny, and we Gentiles, you know, a, a little bit different uh, in accordance, but, but there's no difference in quality of eternal life like we talked about, uh, only difference in roles, so... Um, so this morning, you know, in light of, of that destiny, we want to talk about more on the first coming and, and the nature of that and the, you know, the centrality of that in, in the New Testament, because again, the New Testament isn't, you know, there's a whole bunch of hubbub and stuff going on in the, in the New Testament, right? Right. So the question is, what's what's it all about? What's all the what's all the fuss about? Both good and bad. What's and 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 uh, all the excitement isn't over the age to come. That's not what's causing all of all of the ruckus <laughs> in the New Testament. The the the. the uh, the conflict and, and the good news and all of that is over the first coming and how it relates to the second coming. And so, um, so we want to work through that. And so to, to start out with, we want to view the first coming in a simple chronological, uh, temporal manner in which you have a, uh, like in Luke 24, the disciples are walking along the road and they're Discussing with one another, and and Jesus, in a resurre in resurre after being resurrected, walks up, you know, 
with them and says, what are you talking about? And they say, haven't you heard? You know, everybody's heard about what's going on in Jerusalem, you know, so it's, everybody's talking about what's, there's this guy and signs and wonders were happening and we all thought he would be the one to redeem Israel, right? So again, you have a, a very common assumption of the redemption of Israel involved and but then our chief priests, they killed him and such. And, and uh, more than this, we've heard testimony that you know, he's, he's not in the tomb anymore. And, and he says to him, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, right? So there's, there's more involved in the prophets than just the, the promises mm-hmm. in the view of the end. And... Um, so he's not talking about all in that there's some new knowledge about the end involved. He's talking about all in relation to the first coming. Because that's what the question that's at hand. Mm-hmm. We thought he was going to bring in the age to come and the resurrection and stuff, but they killed him. We thought the angels were going to come in glory, the heavens were going to open, ascending, descending on the temple, but they killed him. So the question is over the first coming, and the all that's in the prophets and such is related to the first coming. And that's the, that's the mystery part of the two comings, because the Jewish expectation, like, you know, was on the diagram, the Jewish ex- expectation was just like this, only without a cross in the middle, right? The, the mysterious part is what's talked about less and is not so very apparent at, at face value. And that is that the Messiah had to die and suffer before entering his glory, right? And so he works, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them uh, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So there's there's three main areas that are going to talk about, that are going to be referenced as suffering before glory. There's the direct prophecies, specifically Isaiah 53, which gets referenced throughout the New Testament and the epistles. Then also Psalm 22, Daniel 9, right? 62 weeks, 7 weeks, then the the anointed one will be cut off to bring in atonement and righteousness and these kinds of things. Um, And then secondly, you have the calendar, uh, which involves the, the, which revolves around the festival system, right? And you have the, the, the Passover and Pentecost before the Tabernacles festival, which in the yearly calendar, the fest, the Tabernacles is at the end of the year and inaugurates the, the, the new year, Rosh Hashanah and in which that was interpreted messianically as the new age. And so you have a suffering before glory. And even in the you know Passover event itself, you have a kind of typological you know, killing of the lambs at, at, at dusk before the judgment at midnight. So like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So it was very clear they interpreted the death of the Messiah you know, figuratively and typologically as, as pointing to a greater future reality, which involved the first coming and second coming. And then lastly, 
he would be working out of the law and the prophets of the sacrificial system, which that's the main aspect. And, and uh, you're going to get a lot of the sacrificial language, the language of not just directly sacrifice, but references to blood in general. Been, re been redeemed by his blood. That's all. That's that's not theological jargon to them, right? No. Down the road is a really big building, and there's blood all over it all the time, sacrificing animals, right? So there's a there's a whole sacrificial system going on that everybody is assuming in light of interpreting his death and the shedding of his blood. Right, and that is that's all going to be interpreted uh, typologically as pointing to a greater sacrifice before to avert a greater judgment at the day of the Lord, and and so you get that you know not only sprinkled throughout uh, Paul's writings, but especially in Hebrews. So in my mind, like Hebrews eight through ten is going to be the climax of what Jesus is saying to them as they're walking down the road, right, to Emmaus. And not only were there direct prophecies, but the time scale of redemptive history is set up by God. And the calendar given to Israel, it wasn't just random. It wasn't just like, hey, here's a good way to structure your time. And like, it was it was set up, the the, the, the weekly system of, Sabbath was based on creation mm -hmm. and the the design of time and the yearly you know festivals system was designed around redemptive history as a whole. I mean, it's not like it's not like some special like why else would God do it other than He created time itself and wanted to give them anyway. So so and then the sacrificial system is is. You know, the, it's why kill animals to make up for your bad things you've done. I mean, you step back from it, and it's it's a strange it's a strange reality. The, you know, the to the whole atonemental reality of of you did something wrong and you deserve punishment. And something in your stead will be punished, and you will be forgiven. I mean, it's a basic substitutional reality that that uh, that is that is primarily how the death of the Messiah was interpreted, right? Because lots of guys died before Jesus. Lots of prophets died. John the Baptist died, but God, nobody interpreted their death in an atonemental fashion, and God didn't interpret any of their death to mean anything, mm -hmm. right? And so, and so this is what is going to be, you know, Acts 1, the 40 days of teaching on the kingdom of God is not just going to be talking about the conclusion, which is what the disciples drive. Are you at this time going to do the day of the Lord and restore the kingdom to Israel, right? But, it's going to be talking about redemptive history as a whole for 40 days. And the assumption is, is that the things that are recorded in the New Testament, the epistles, 
both General and Pauline, are going to substantially represent those 40 days. Okay? That this is what Peter and John, the apostles, and then later, uh, like Paul in Galatians 1, where he talks about, you've received another gospel, let be eternally condemned, but I received the gospel by revelation. From Jesus Christ. I didn't go up to Jerusalem to hear it, assuming that what he received by revelation, which is justification by faith, was the same thing that they were saying in Jerusalem, and he didn't go there to receive it. But Jesus revealed it to the apostles in Acts 1, and then revealed it to Paul independently. Right? And the assumption is, is that they're saying the same thing. Right? And, and, uh, which you get that kind of dynamic where there's it's a little bit, you know, between Paul and the rest of, of the apostles, like Peter says in Second Peter 3 at the end of his epistle. You, you get Second Peter 3 where it's just like day of the Lord, just a, a real simple direct from creation to now you have a scoffing spirit about the judgment of God that's coming upon the earth. But the same way he did the flood, he's going to do the heavens and the earth with fire and there's coming a day of judgment, but God's really patient and kind. That's why the cross happened, right? One died for, however he says in First Peter 3, uh, just a real simple, uh, direct, pull it out so I don't butcher the quotation of it, right? First Peter 3, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, raised up and so the end of second peter three you have a just a real simple linear timeline of creation types of judgment eschatological judgment new heavens new earth bam right and then paul says uh so so then uh 314 dear friends since you are looking forward to this Make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, right? And, and that's how the cross was essentially understood, was the patience of God towards sinners. Means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes in the same way in all his letters, speaking of them, of these matters. Right? Paul's saying the exact same thing that Peter says in just a raw, coarse, direct way. Paul says the same things, but he says some things that are hard to understand. Right? He, he says it with uh, a lot more language, a lot more articulation, a lot more uh, depth, if you will, but... Like a like that timeline's got a lot of depth to it, right? It's real simply apprehendable by by the youngest of child and the most uneducated man. But the thing's got a lot of depth to it, and the and the nature and character of God and holiness and righteousness and how He's related to the the sinfulness and brokenness of man. And so he says, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. 
So this was the, the nature of Gnosticism in the early church, is they, they immediately attracted to Paul and started using Paul's theology to justify all kinds of Gnostic ideas. And Marcion, who's the, Marcion is, is one of the early church's major heretics, you know, the Marcionite heresy that pitted the Old Testament God against the New Testament God, and one's a God of wrath, the other's a God of love, and one has a husk of Jew, Jewishness, and right, and the other has uh, an immaterial heavenly destiny, and it's all, you end up pitting Paul and Marcion said, you know, parts of Luke, and he started like kind of cutting up the Gospels and and saying these letters are are you know represent God more faithfully, and and it was really Marcion that created, made the stir for. It was the impetus behind creating the canon of the New Testament, saying no, no, these represent God. These Gospels faithfully represent Jesus, and these letters are from Paul, and they from the apostles, the apostolic tradition handed this to us and and the things you're saying, you know, are so I, I just say that to say that there's a there's a simple uh tradition that's handed down based on a simple linear view of time that's chronologically oriented that places the first coming before the second coming and the first coming fundamentally has to do with the patience and mercy of God in light of the apocalyptic day of the Lord that's coming, right? Very unsophisticated and straightforward. First Peter 1, concerning this salvation, the prophets and the salvation is, you know, talking about the, the inexpressible joy in the first nine verses that's been laid up for you, you know, the, the, an inheritance that doesn't, you know, spoil and that kind of thing. And though you endure suffering now, you know, we we have inexpressible joy. And though you haven't seen him, you love him because we're look for him, looking forward to the salvation of our souls, right? When our souls no longer have a body of death, but have a body of life that doesn't war against the soul. Um, so he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently. And with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Say your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. So again, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this... Um, Again, this is like this is like when when like when we read yesterday when Paul is saying these things, he's not saying them in abstraction. You know, the end of Romans thirteen and talking about the law and fulfilling the law and what that means. He's not saying it in abstraction. He's he's just he's saying it contra what he's about to say in Revel in Romans fourteen against the circumcision group and how they view fulfilling the law, right? So I, I'm not saying this to, I'm, I'm saying I'm going to set this up to make a, a point against interpreting, uh, conflating the first and second coming together and, and the confusion that that causes and the simplicity of the, the presentation of 
redemptive history in the New Testament. <clears throat> so uh, the suffering of the Christ for atonement is revolves around the depravity of man and the holiness of God. This is what the first coming is revolving around, is the delusion of man concerning his own sinfulness, right? So, uh, so this is what Paul is, is trying to establish in the first three chapters of Romans, that all have fallen short of the glory of God, both Jew and Gentile. Everybody understands in chapter 1 of Romans that the Gentiles, the pagans, are, are, have fallen short and deserve eternal damnation, right? But then he's driving at the Jews in the situation that are passing judgment on the Gentiles in the Church of Rome. And the passing judgment is that air of superiority and that self-righteousness that is completely destructive in any situation, you know, to, to, to the mental psyche of human beings. So you have this this attitude of passing judgment from the circumcised believers towards the uncircumcised believers. So Romans 2, he's hammering on the circumcised believers and you Jews in your midst. And then he moves into chapter 3 and he's trying to establish that all have fallen short, right? So he, he makes that, um, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it's written. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's not one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Right? He's just quoting out the Psalms. Dish, 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 dish. And then what he says... Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, right? So what he's saying there is, look, the Psalms aren't talking about the pagans. The Psalms are talking about the Jews, right? So you as a Jew can't read the Psalms and go, oh, it's not talking about me. I'm good, right? He's quoting out of the Psalms, do, 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 do slam home the point that both Jew and Gentile are under sin, meaning under condemnation on the day of wrath, which he centered everything around chapter 2, right? So both Jew and Gentile are under condemnation. And then he's going to bring the whole thing to climax in Romans 11, where before the great doxology, oh, the wisdom and knowledge of God, he brings the whole thing to climax saying, in the sovereignty of God, he consigned all over to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. He consigned the Gentiles to disobedience, to the, the, what we might say, the depravity of man, and he consigned the Jews to disobedience, that he might build a testimony in the of the riches of his kindness in the age to come, which is like Ephesians 2, right? The whole thing builds, but you were dead in your transgressions. By nature, children of wrath, following the spirit of the air of this age, right? But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. It's by grace you've been saved. He made you alive with him and seated you in heavenly places with him. That in the coming ages, the riches of his mercies might be made known. Because it's by grace you've been saved, right? He taxes it on either end. By grace you've been saved. Why? 
Because the whole point is in the coming ages, God wants to make a testimony about His mercy and His holiness and His kindness and the depravity and wickedness of man that, in the, that at the day of the Lord, He would be honored and man would be humiliate, humiliated and the righteous would be exalted and the wicked would be brought low. And in the coming ages, it would be evident to all that that no man can boast before him and that he alone deserves honor and praise and glory. And, you know, so he's setting this whole thing up like this, right? <clears throat> so, so then he says, so that every mouth, Jew and Gentile, but his main point there in, in Romans 3, every mouth may be silenced, right? Because he's dealing with the boasting of the Jews and the passing, their passing judgment on the Gentiles. Every mouth might be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Jew and Gentile alike will be, will be uh, anyway, rather through the law we become conscious of sin, but we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. So, um, Galatians 3, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would cer certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So you get this prisoner of sin idea in which in which salvation, the word salvation, is, is uh, etymologically, it inherently carries the idea of release from captivity, right? And so salvation, the, the general idea of it is that humanity is in bondage in some way. And you get this, like, you know, <laughs> I was reading this the other day, and it was just kind of like a fresh John 8. 31, John 8, 30. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him, right? He's in the temple area. To the Jews who had believed in him, right? It, it's, <laughs> again, it's not like he's working the situation to make people like, God's just trying to, like, he, he has a contention with humanity that the first coming is trying to highlight because he has a testimony that he's building towards and a lawsuit at the end of the age that he's trying to charge humanity with. And, and he's not just trying to get everybody to get along and make friends. He's trying to, he's trying to make humanity recognize something, right? You, you understand? So you get a, a feel of this in John 8 where he's got guys who are gathered around him and we believe it. You are the Messiah. Yeah. And, and he just like sticks it in their eye. You know, it's like, it, it's like it, it, it just carries that. Like there's a bigger issue going on that you don't know that's going on. And, and I'm going to confront you with it. Go out. Right. So to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Fair enough. They answered, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? Uh, 
I'm, I'm good. <laughs> right? I, nothing. <coughs> I'm not in bondage. I, I'm not quite getting the set free analogy, right? Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. I don't sin. I mean, I, you know, I'm generally a good person, right? I, I obey law. I, I do what God's commanded. Um, you know, everybody says I'm blameless in his sight, right? We're <clears throat> Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Uh, Abraham's our father, right? If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me. A man who is, a man who has told you the truth that, wait, as it is, you are determined to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did, did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We're not illegitimate children. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now I'm here. Right? Even as he's speaking, many are putting their faith in him. And then he turns on them and says... You know what I'm saying? It's like, <laughs> if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he, he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I... Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any one of you prove me guilty of sin? I'm telling you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you don't hear is that you do not belong to God. You know what I mean? It's just like this provoking. You believe your father the devil. And rather than a, a you know, rehearsing of, oh, I had this, 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 this wicked thought this morning, and he's right, and... I am in bondage, and oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, like there, there's, we're not, we're not enslaved to any. We're, yeah. We don't have sin. We're Abraham's children, our God's father. We're, we're gonna inherit eternal life. We don't have anything to to repent of. We don't need John's baptism. We're not in error. We don't have sin in our lives going on. And you have a, I'm going to inherit eternal life. Because I'm righteous before God. Right? I mean, it's not a hard equation. It's, it's, it's common to every human being. A rejection of the depravity of man. It, right? Like, friends of mine were, you know, on a road trip. And they pick up this guy on the side of the road, a hitchhiker. And he hops in the back seat. And, and he just starts spewing, like, the most hideous sins and perversions and just going on and on you know like and and at one point he says something 
the, the so sexually immoral and perverted. Like, my friend in the front seat, like, gasped. Like, it, it took his breath away. He just went... <laughs> And, uh, and all of a sudden, the guy driving, he's, he's a, just a gifted evangelist. He, he says, so, so man, what's going to happen when you stand before God? Just said it just like that. And the guy all of a sudden goes, oh, well, you know, I, I think he'll be all right. I'm basically a good person. And, and the guy in the front seat was like, so you treat women with honor and value? And, you know, just after this, like, hideous. The guy was, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, women women deserve to be respected and, and treated with honor and just start going on. And, and the guy in the front seat just, like, you know, he just started driving on him, you know, and, and all of the issues of all this perversion that just came up and trying to, yeah. Like nail him down and and provide room for the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, and the guy was just completely in denial and completely. I, I'm I'm basically a good person, and I'm not going to face judgment, you know. And wow. and this is an unbeliever, yeah. You know, all human beings self-justify, but the propensity for a man who's been cultivated wow. in righteousness. Then the propensity is even more to self-justify, right? And so this is what is being confronted with Jesus and Peter that they're trying to drive home. Look, you cannot base your relationship before God based on your obedience to the law. You will not be justified and acquitted on that day based on your obedience to the law. It will not happen. It's it's. The same as like in the Passover. You get passed over from death based on faith in the blood, right? That, that's the only way that happens. Anyway, but we'll get to that a, a little bit more uh, as we go on. So, reconciliation by the cross. So, page two, you have the, uh, the basic conundrum of the holiness of God and the depravity of man and the alienation between God and man that brings reconciliation or atonement. Atonement is just a, an old English word that, uh, that Tyndale actually used a couple times to translate reconciliation. It means the same thing. It means at one with, at one minute, right? So it's interchangeable with reconciliation. The problem is modern translations have used the word atonement to be interchangeable with propitiation, which is not the same word. Right, they're they're not talking about the same things really. I mean, in a general fashion, but the problem is, is that words communicate reality, and atonement has become one of those words that's not it's not used in society really, and it's kind of become theological jargon, right? <laughs> so on that said again, I I, I blanked out on all the same. Yeah. You get about 60% of whatever. Uh, then the other 40%. Yeah, you get the uh, yeah, that's a cool action. Okay. So, <laughs> so uh, atonement is a, is a Middle English word that, that is, is designed to communicate the same thing as reconciliation. Right? That, that, okay. Those are synonyms. Reconciliation and atonement. At one meant. At one with. Right to and and uh, 
And so originally, like, that is what that word was designed to translate, was the Greek word for reconciliation. In, in modern times, atonement has been used to translate the word for propitiation. Which is... Can you explain what that means? Which we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Yeah. But the two words, propitiation and atonement, are not, not, the, same. not the same word. And, uh, I mean, they can be. You can make a word communicate whatever you want. I'm not saying that, but the word atonement was originally meant to communicate reconciliation ideas. That's the point. And the etymology of it, at one meant, is a, is a reconciliation word, etymology, right? So, Romans 5, God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, God died for us. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him, we were uh, uh, atonement with him. Through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life, right? So there's the kind of basic atonement happened, and we will be saved. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Colossians 1, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in, in the heavens, heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So the in your sight is a reference to the appearing of God and when, when we see God. So the suffering of the Christ as sacrifice. So the, the primary way throughout the scriptures that the alienation between God and man, the holiness of God and the sin of man, the way that's atoned for and reconciled is through sacrifice. And this is, this is generally universal to human beings, right? You go up to any Hindu temple on the top of a mountain in India, and they have blood over everything. They don't really use blood anymore. It's the, they use kind of a, a red dye on everything. But they still have animal sacrifices, you know, in modern day. But previous to that, it was there's a common universal historical act of sacrifice. That's viewed in modern times more as primitive and superstitious and strange, but it's common to human beings throughout history to, to make an offering to the gods, to propitiate, to, to reconcile us before God, the gods or, or God, to make things right where we've made things wrong. This is how the first coming is understood is in sacrificial language, right? And so Jesus interprets his own death along these lines, like in Luke 22, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So everything is projected eschatologically in light of the final fulfillment of all things, this is what's happening right now, and it will find fulfillment 
in, in the age to come. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then the parallel in Matthew 26 says, for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is interpreting his own death that's about to happen in sacrificial language, the pouring out of blood, which was the, the blood of the animals are put, is poured out in front of the altar, right, for the forgiveness of sins. And then uh, throughout the book of Acts, you get the forgiveness of sins language, okay, which is understood as in, in sacrificial terms, because there is no forgiveness of sins apart from sacrifice, right? And so Acts 13, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by in the law of Moses, right? So the, the, a lot of people will say there's no developed theology of atonement in the book of Acts. And it's like... I, uh, of course there is. The forgiveness of sins is preached throughout the book of Acts. It's a narrative. Of course they're not going to go into a deep theological discussion about the uh, atonemental reality and the nature of sacrifice. Because all of that is, is, you know, backshop lingo that the mechanics all already understand. <laughs> Right? You got four mechanics sitting around. They're not going to sit there, you know, well, we're moving this car through, we brought this car, we brought it in, we fixed it up. They're not going to go into what fixing up that old, you know, Mustang involved because they're all mechanics. They know what fixing up the Mustang's about, right? Yeah. The, there's only one way to forgiveness of sins, and that's by sacrifice through which you're. The God is appeased, propitiated, through which you're justified before God and you're redeemed from your sins, right? Like, uh, all, of, all of that is understood when you say your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus. You're applying to Jesus the way that sins are forgiven, which is sacrificially, right? Mm -hmm. So you get that and, and clearly articulate, again, the mechanics sitting around, you... you there's a, all the assumptions that you're trying to get on page with when you're reading the New Testament, right? Because there's all kinds of assumptions going on. Because it's just a letter written between friends, okay? That already has a lot of background going on and a lot of history. And Paul's writing letters to deal with particular issues pastorally. And he's not writing treatises to lay out his position, right? So you got all kinds of assumptions that you're trying to get on the same page with. And you're trying to come into correspondence with that we're saying the same thing, right? So this is this is the point is is that you know you'll get points when when a broad theology of a new heavens and new earth is articulated directly, like in Acts three, and you get times when the forgiveness of sins and how that happens is direct directly articulated, like in Hebrews eight through ten, right? And so. You get it. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is just a, a, a point he's making while he's, you know, in the argument about the, the tabernacle and the earthly copy of the heavenly reality and this stuff. 
But as it is, and it's all driving home to this point, that the, the earthly tabernacle and system was a type and shadow of the greater sacrificial system that, that was to come in Christ Jesus. Not that the earlier one has no purpose in and of itself, it's just that it cleanses outwardly, which it does, and the greater sacrifices cleanses inwardly the conscience when all men will give an account before God and the motives of their heart are revealed, etc. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So, right, you have a very simple two-age framework. This age is ordained for man to be frustrated to the point of death to bring repentance that he might be saved from the wrath to come. So just as man is ordained within this two-age framework, so also is the Christ ordained within a two-age framework to bear sins, though he's righteous, and then bring salvation as we are ordained to die and face judgment. You see what I'm saying? And so this isn't, this is, this is a very simple, straightforward approach to interpreting the death of the Messiah before the glory of the Messiah. You see what I'm saying? And it has infinite depth and meaning and mystery and glory, but it's very straightforward in, in how it's, now it's extremely challenging right? It's not, it's not just, oh, okay, yeah, that's cool, right? Yeah, there's coming a tornado tomorrow night that's going to destroy your entire house and leave you with nothing, and oh, yeah, that's cool, right on. No, it's like, okay, uh, you know, the, the fact that this earth is going to be consumed in fire, right? And all men will give an account of their deeds and the very motives and the thoughts of their heart. And it's all going to be laid before God and, and repaid with eternal damnation and eternal life. And this earth will be a home of righteousness and the wicked will be, right, like, like that takes faith to go, yeah, man, that's, that's real. It's, it's actually going to happen, you know. The financiers are going to give an account. The, 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 the leaders of the nations are going to give an account. The, the perverted and the pimps are going to give it from top to bottom. Men are going to give an account. That takes faith to believe. How even more it takes faith to believe the judgment's coming at midnight, and how do I not die? Mm. Well, I, I put blood over this door, and I and I get inside the house, and I'm not going to die, right? Like I don't, I don't go out and build a mud hut, I don't don't go out and swim in the Nile, I I don't go into the king's palace, I I don't gather a bunch of people, I don't, I I don't, 
whatever, 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 like, I put blood over the door, and I don't die. Yeah. Right? Like, in anticipation of this, this is, this is how I don't die and face judgment, right? So the, the issue, and it's the same way with sacrifice, right? The whole, the whole sacrificial system is, is a faith-based system. You sin, and you bring the animal to the priest, and you confess the sins over the animal, and you have to have faith that God reckons the animal in your stead, right? Because you walk away with the memories, you walk away with the same brokenness, you walk away with the same emotions, right? And the thing that fixes that is your faith that God reckons the sacrifice in your stead. You understand? Because that's what's happening with the, 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 the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector that come up to the temple in Luke, 8, in Luke 18, and they're both offering the sacrifice. And the one man in his heart doesn't reckon the sacrifice. He reckons his own works. The other man recognizes his deeds. And he's reckoning, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's reckoning the animal in his stead, right? And he's reckoning the nature and character of God. And this is actually how it is. That when God descends in glory and comes to that temple and gathers the nations, because they both know they're going to be gathered to that temple to face judgment, right? The one has in his heart that this is how it will go. The other has in his heart that this is how it will go. And the other walks away from the temple justified before God. Whether the tax collector walks out in his own little mess, whether he's worked it out or not, you know what I'm saying? Like, whether he's attained it in his own heart or not, that, we don't know about that. But before God, he is justified by his faith in that sacrament. You see what I'm saying? And so this is the whole game that's going on between us and God in light of the day of judgment is how is the sacrifice reckoned before God and do we have the same faith that that's how it's reckoned in our own hearts? And you're going to get this set up like intense in Philippians 3 like where it just comes to a head of have we attained that faith or not have, have, have do we reckon like god reckons mm. and how will it actually play out when everything is exposed on that day <clears throat> so this is where the language of the righteousness of god comes from why don't we take a break and right. before we get into the righteousness of god language